That's right. Grab a seat. Grab a seat. My name is Janice. Welcome to the Vineyard. It's so good to be with you this morning. Um, I'm pleased to be able to share with you the second sermon in our new series that we uh, started last week. And uh, I'm just going to let you know that we, it's called Building a Home, by the way. I can't remember if that shows up. Um, we are going to be bouncing through some scripture this morning. So, you, get, you know, get out your implements, right? If you have a device, if you have a Bible, if you are just watching off the screen, or if you're taking notes, uh, we're not going to stay in one place. So maybe you won't have time to flip back and forth, but at least write down the reference so that you can uh, stay with us. You know, throughout scripture, this, this series is called Building a Home. Throughout scripture, the process of building our relation, of maturing our relationship to God is often described in terms, in building terms, in building terms. Actually, the, the creation of the church, uh, Jesus tells Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Uh, I don't know about you, but we had little songs, right? Wise man built his house upon the rock. We had all of those kind of things growing up. There's lots of building terms, even in terms of building our home. So uh, through the series, we are looking at the idea of, of building Christ-centered homes uh, through this lens that we often find in Scripture. And so we're going to be bouncing around finding some of that. Let's start in 2 Peter. If uh, you have a, an actual Bible with pages, go clear to the right. You're almost at the end. Uh, to 2 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 5. Now, this is Peter writing to, uh, he's writing a letter to the new church that, that Jesus has gone to heaven. This is, this is Peter in the early church. These new Christians live throughout the known world, and they've established churches, and, and frankly, they're struggling a little bit. You know, you, sometimes when we surrender our life to Jesus, and then reality appears, and uh, you're struggling a little bit, and so he's encouraging them, he's uh, rebuking them a little bit, and, and here's what he says, therefore... Rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind, and like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, Jesus as the cornerstone, right? Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living small s stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood. We are being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, last week, our pastor launched this series and uh, talked about the aspect of blueprints. And uh, I don't know about you, but if you've ever looked at, a, at blueprints, I love looking at them, but I can't read them. There is stuff on there that does not make sense to me because that's not my contracting field and I don't know what that is. But, but you know what? You don't have to know the whole blueprint for your life either. You just need to know that God designed it and he will complete the work he started in you and, and you can trust that, right? You don't have to worry about that. But today we're going to talk about the second most important aspect to a building project, in my opinion. Are you ready? In this economy, that would be the lumber package. Anybody in here know how high lumber has gotten? That didn't go very far, right? Lumber is high. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to talk about lumber tonight. We're, we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about foundations. 
We're going to talk about foundation. Um, that's the aspect that we're, that we're working on today, okay? Um, you know, when I was small, my dad built our house. I was five years old when he started. I was the youngest of four, and there were uh, six of us living in probably a little five to 600 square foot thing, and he whacked off the kitchen and built this colonial brick home on the side of it, and so, uh, so permit-wise, we got to live there as it was building, and he warned us that it would take five years to build. And it did. I was five when it started, and I was 10 before it was done uh, because he insisted on doing everything himself that he probably wasn't even qualified to do. I think, he didn't, I think he subbed out the plumbing. Other than that, he did it all. The electric, I think he even did the HVAC. I don't know. But the point was he wanted to pay for it as he went. He wanted to do it himself, and it took a, a solid 10 years. Do you know how many changes to, can take place in a five-year building project? Do you know how many times we redesigned the kitchen, moved a few walls around, did a few things? Do you know what we, did never, what we never changed? The foundation. See, we set that foundation that first summer. I'll never forget it. We, you know, I watched everything come in, and they dug that thing and, and set the foundation. They got the walls up, got the roof on, and then we took our time doing a whole lot of things inside. But the foundation set the stage for what it is we were going to do. That is one thing that we were not going to change. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 13. For we are co-workers. He's talking about himself and the other, other apostles. We are co-workers in God's service. You, the church, are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And someone else is building on it, meaning another teacher. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay another foundation except the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will, come, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each man's work. You want to know where the foundation is? Just burn the thing down. And you will see where the foundation is, right? Things will be revealed by fire. This is in Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Now look at this verse. Notice that it does not say, for everyone who hears these words of mine and claims to be a Christian is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. See, we got a lot of people today who are claiming all kinds of stuff. Well, that's my church. That's, my, that's where my membership is. I, you know, I've gone there a couple of times. I never ask someone if they belong to a church. I never ask them if they're a member at a church. I always say, is there a church you're attending regularly? <laughs> and they are much more truthful about that, right? Because it's really not a matter of what you claim. Well, I want to know what your actions are. Do you actually get out and do something? Are you actually participating in something? I just want to know if you're active in what, what you're doing. And he says, if you put my words into practice, that is building a house on a rock. So here's my question for us this morning. What is the foundation that you're building your life on? What is the foundation that you're building your family on? And don't answer too glibly. Don't answer too quickly. Oh, we love Jesus. We all surrendered to Jesus. We've gotten sure everybody's dunked. Everybody's baptized. We're all good. We're, we're part of this church. We, we maybe even cut donuts. And, well, we don't have donuts anymore. But anyway, we, we make coffee. We're doing all of those things. And, and that makes us a part of the church. No, there's a little bit more to the foundation. So let's talk about it this way. Number one, the foundation sets the shape of the house. 
The foundation determines the shape of the house. You can go up, you can use bad materials, you can use good materials, but the foundation sets the scope of the work that you have. So when we hear God's words and when we practice his teachings, we are building on a solid foundation. There's a gentleman uh, that we know um, that recently said something that struck me very, I mean, it was so truthful, it just blew me away. He said, you know, I'm a member of a church, but I don't consider myself a very good Christian because I don't follow the teachings of Christ. And I'm like, oh, that is, that's very honest. That's novel. That he understood that in order to be a Christian, that means that you follow the teachings of Christ. So you need to know them, first of all, but then you actually have to do them. And so, you know, he's in a very good position of knowing where he needs to go next. So don't, you know, we go through life claiming things and wearing banners and thinking we're wearing the, journey, the jersey, but this is someone who actually does what needs to be done. So instead, I think we build our lives on a whole lot of other things instead of Jesus. A foundation is what gives our life stability. A foundation is what makes us secure. It's the thing that keeps us from sinking, okay? So think about the things in your life that make you feel secure. What are the things that we are building on after the, that are left after the fire, right? What are the things that we're really building on? What makes you feel secure? Does it make you feel secure to know that your bank accounts are in good order? That your investments are in good order? That you have a job with a regular income? Is that what makes you feel secure? Do you feel secure when you know you have your relationships in order? Either you've got a spouse, you don't have a spouse, your children are not mad at you, you've got whatever you're having, to, whatever that, do you, have your, do you have your family in order? Does that, that make you feel secure? Are you feeling secure because your health is solid? Maybe you've overcome some, you know, terrible diagnosis and you're feeling secure about that. What is it that makes you feel secure and stable? And I can, can I just say, if it was any of those things that I mentioned, as good as those are to have, they could all be gone in an instant. Tomorrow, the market could crash. You could be fired. You could have nothing. Tomorrow, your family could be killed in some terrible accident or in a a condo crash, whatever it is. You could be thinking you're living the life and it could be gone for you tomorrow. Your health could come back with a bad report tomorrow. None of that is a foundation worth building on. Because when all of that is stripped away, just ask Job, when all of that is stripped away, what is left is what matters. And that foundation needs to be Jesus. Peter says, we are being built into a spiritual house and a, royal, a holy royal priesthood and we offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to him. Now, let me talk about the sacrifice part here. What he's referring to is in the Old Testament, uh, before Jesus came, the way that you made yourself right with God, the way that you practiced your faith was that on a regular schedule, you would take an animal and you would offer it as payment for your sins, right? That animal would be killed in substitution for you. That's called substitutionary atonement. That animal takes your place and dies for the things that you've done. And you do that on a regular basis. You offer a regular acceptable sacrifice. Now, here's the problem. Over time, you give people a script of what they do, need to do to, to say that they're sorry, and it can become routine. I was watching somebody's clip from 4th of July, um, and uh, I won't name any names, but uh, somebody, some parent was talking to one of their small children in this church, and, and somebody was recording it, and they said, no, did you hit him? You tell him you're sorry right now. Tell him you're sorry. 
How many of us have done that? Have you, if you've had children, surely there is a time when you instructed them to say they were sorry. And if you had a child look at you defiantly like, I am not sorry, and I don't feel like saying it. Do you know what I mean? But eventually, maybe you can coerce a, I'm sorry. But, but as a parent, you know it, they're lying, right? You know it's not real, right? It becomes a meaningless sacrifice. Now, God is not saying he doesn't want you to sacrifice. He's just saying, I'd like for him to mean something. <laughs> you show up, right? So, so yes, it is good to go through the motions of what God wants from us, but, but ultimately what makes them worthwhile is when we mean it from our heart, right? So what we're talking about here, Hebrews 10, 8, this is first he said, meaning Jesus, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Our foundation has got to be something more than just routine. But let's talk about routines for a minute. What I'm talking about here is the idea of spiritual rhythms. What are your spiritual rhythms? We build a home on a spiritual foundation with your children and with your spouse by setting spiritual rhythms. Now listen, in the year of our Lord, 2020, Rhythms took a hit, didn't they? I mean, I mean, now some of you, bless your heart, you like leaned in and you started new rhythms and you lost 50 pounds and you look great and, and amen to you. Some of us didn't do that. Some of us had a little trouble without that accountability around us, right? And our, and our rhythms took a hit, okay? But, but it took a hit. And, and for some of us, it meant, well, we weren't coming to church for a year. Man, I feel so bad for the churches in Great Britain right now. We have friends over there. They still, they're in another lockdown. They still have not been able to meet. Listen, if you're 40 years old and you haven't gotten to go to church for an entire year, you're probably okay if you're a mature believer and you know how to feed yourself, right? You know how to read your Bible, you know how to reach resources, you know how to do all that thing. If you are four years old and you didn't go to church for a whole year, that was a quarter of your life. That is a quarter of our children's lives. And when we're talking about creating foundations for our home, we have got to think about the rhythms of life for our children, what it is that they consider normal that we're going to be doing no matter what. Now, you know, COVID is, is maybe not restricting us as much anymore, but guess what? School's picking back up, extracurricular activities are picking back up, and again, those interrupt spiritual rhythms. A few years ago, we did a series, uh, an, an evening series for parents that we called uh, un Parenting Unplugged here at the church, and uh, I think we even have some of them recorded, but one of the ones that I will never forget, by the way, we just talked about all the difficult things about raising adolescents. We didn't talk about littles and, and bigs. We talked about that adolescent age. Man, how do you parent in this world with the internet availability? How do you parent in this world with cell phones? How do you parent it based on things that are, you know, keeping them safe, all these different things, right? One of the things I will never forget is a woman who shared about extracurricular activities. Now, this was a family with six kids, and the oldest was a bit of an athlete, and the athlete that was recruited heavily to be on traveling teams, and they were looking at scholarships and all the rest of it, and so uh, they took this job. As she said in her, in her talk, we missed the entire summer of church. We were in church two times that entire summer because we were traveling every single weekend. 
with our children. And she goes, and I didn't feel terrible about it because I decided that I was going to have church with these kids and we had devotions that were on the ball field every, time, every Sunday and we did all those things and I thought that was enough. And she said, and I was aware that it was not enough because my children did not learn the rhythm of coming to church. My children did not learn the priority of worshiping with the collective body of church. My children did not learn the importance of exercising their gifts within the body of believers that is here instead of just doing whatever they wanted wherever they were. It was a powerful testimony. She said, I will never do it again. We pulled our kid off of the travel stuff and we will do everything we can that doesn't affect our spiritual rhythms because that was important for us. Folks, here's the deal. If you have kids, you only have to do something about twice and it becomes a tradition. Have you noticed that? Our children are all grown now, and it's fun when we get together and they're going, oh, remember how we always did that? And I'm like, no, we didn't. We did that like twice. <laughs> well, we always did that. We always had pizza on Christmas Eve. I remember that once. I don't know. You know, you, you know what? It's the same way with your animals. If you have a dog, you feed that dog at 5 o'clock two days in a row. Guess what he's doing on the third day at 5 o'clock? He's drooling. You have created an expectation, Right? Imagine setting that kind of expectation in your family. This is what we do. This is what we're going to be doing. This is where we're going. Now, as I say that, please hear me. We are not about compulsory um, salvations for our children. Our pastor won't baptize any of the, of the children under 10 for that very reason. We don't want children submitting to that to make somebody else happy. It needs to be an individual decision. But you know what? I will set the environment, uh, the environment for them all day long, giving them the place where they will hear for God and learn to make that decision on their own, right? To build a spiritual home, you must create spiritual rhythms. But here's the thing. If your spiritual rhythm doesn't really reflect your lifestyle, your kids will see right through that. They will see right through that. If you demand that they show up at church and you do all this stuff and you present yourself in one way, but the rest of the week you don't match that, they're not going to, get, they're not going to pick up on that. They're going to see right through it, right? So I'm not suggesting that we offer empty sacrifices. I'm suggesting that we actually match the spiritual rhythms that we know we need to set out and to do, right? It's not a matter of keeping up appearances or traditions. And here's the way I'll say it. Spiritual rhythm alone will not create a spiritual foundation. Let's leave this up long enough for people to write it down if they want it. But a spiritual foundation will create a spiritual rhythm. Let me say it again. Spiritual rhythm alone will not create a spiritual foundation, but a spiritual foundation should elicit a spiritual rhythm out of our life. So we are sending bigger messages to our kids by what we do and what we don't do than we have ever imagined, right? And some of us are doing that very intentionally with some things. We're like, oh, we want our kids to have a healthy lifestyle. If you want your kids to eat healthy, start early. You want your kids to learn to manage money well, start early. You want to build a foundation on Christ with your children? Start early. You want them to learn to worship? Let them watch you do that. Okay? And, and set that tone for them so that they're able to do that. 
Now listen, I grew up in a home that was where my family were believers, we were church people. My dad was never one of those people who had like family devotions or sitting at the table. Some people do that, have done that really well. We never did that. We were not that organized, I guess you would say, right? It wasn't like we had to show up and say our memory verses to our dad or any of that, okay? But I'll tell you what, I knew and watched every morning that he was going to get up and, and read his Bible at 8 o'clock before he hit the fields. And on various days, it was earlier than that. He had a solid half hour with Jesus in the living room, and we just walked around him. It wasn't like a private thing, and he wasn't showing off. It was real. I determined early on that my children would be able to see my personal devotion. Do you have a spiritual rhythm of devotion that your children see? I'm all about praying in your closet, but if your children don't see anything that you do, they don't know you do that. But when it's real, it's okay to let them witness that you have a relationship with Jesus and that you're keeping that up. I think that sets the tone for them very, very well. Now, we are living in an age where we have bloggers and we have influencers now who are in this post-evangelical stage, right? And if I'm in the weeds a little bit, just stay with me, I'm coming back. But there are people who are like, listen, I am a deconstructing evangelical and I'm really kind of angry that my parents made me go to church. And the fact that they made me go to church means that I hate church now. I don't want anything to do with it. As if compulsion is the problem. Can we just put that down a little bit and think about all of the things that we compel our children to do? because we know they're important, right? How many of us compel our children to go to school whether they like it or not? How many of us compel our children to go to the doctor whether they like it? My mom tricked me into getting vaccinated at the, at the doctor's office. I remember her driving and I'm like, where are we going? And she pretended she didn't know what we were doing and next thing I know, we're in the doctor's office and I was not happy, I came home with shots. I was not happy about that, right? But you know what, as a grown adult, I do not shy away from medical attention because I had a bad experience at a doctor. I don't know a single adult out there who refuses to count or read because they didn't want to go to school one day. You know what? Now, again, we're not, we're not compulsory here. We're not trying to punch out little cookie-cutter Christians, but it is okay for you to create an environment and insist that your family make spiritual rhythms in hope that they will make those choices on their own. And you set the foundation. And then if they want to build on that with, with wood or if they want to build on that with gold, they'll make that decision later on. And that's okay for them. All right? So, um, single people. Maybe you're in here going, I don't know how I'm going to build a, a spiritual foundation. Well, let me tell you this. One of the ways that you will avoid not building a spiritual um, foundation is being careful who you date. Okay? I get it. Right? I've talked with a lot of single people, and I realize that the pool of available spiritual folk out there are small, and it's so easy to misrepresent yourself in this world. There's a reason why God invited us not to be unequally yoked with someone who would set the foundation off balance. You need to date someone who loves Jesus more than you. You don't date someone by saying, well, if you want to date me, you have to go to church and do this and do this and do this. Lots of people will jump through hoops to be in a relationship with you, and then you'll never know if it was real. So you find someone who loves Jesus well first. For those of us in the room who find ourselves in a relationship and you're like, I am in a good relationship, I love my spouse, but unfortunately they don't share my faith. I get it, God talks about that too. And you know what you're never gonna do is you're never gonna pressure that person into the kingdom. 
You're not. You're not going to coerce them in. You're not going to nag them in. You're not going to do that. You're just going to live for Jesus. You're going to be an example. And if God changes their heart, all the better. And if not, you love them well. And if they want to stay with you, you stay with them. All right? Okay, let's move on. Number two. Storms will expose the foundation, right? Foundation, first of all, sets the scope of what we're building. But number two, the storms will expose the foundation. All of the things that come up against us. Let me tell you a little story. Years ago, and I do say years ago, as in I don't do this anymore, okay? Years ago, I used to make wedding cakes. And um, wedding cakes are a bit of an engineering project. At least back in the day when it, was, uh, when it was popular to stack them really high, like the Tower of Pisa, right? So the way you do a wedding cake, let's just stick with rounds here, is you, you use your largest for the base, right? Whatever dim dimensions that's going to be. You cook two of them, you stack them together with some frosting, right? Double layers. And then you take the next layer, which is obviously going to be a little bit smaller and set on the inside, and you'll use some kind of hard base, maybe a plastic base or or a piece of cardboard will even do the trick. And so for every double base, there's a, a hard bottom edge to it. Now, you can't just stack those things. They'll sink all the way through because cake is heavy. It's very heavy. So after you get the first layer done, you take dowel rods, and at least this is how I constructed, and I'd stick dowel rods into the cake at exactly the height of that first double layer. So it would set right on top of that frosting, and really the, the cardboard of the next layer is setting on top of those dowels, which is held in place by the density of the cake, right? And the, and the dowels are right on the edge of the next layer up. And then you stack, and you stack, and you stack. Now, that's all well and good in your kitchen. It's another matter to get it to the reception hall. Okay? Thankfully, at most reception halls, you'll find like the cake is like a side item. It's up like against a wall, and they've got dancing and everything else out there, and it's like a side thing. Well, this particular wedding that I was taking a cake to, the, the cake was the centerpiece, like the Eiffel Tower, of the entire room, and all the tables were around it. I didn't know that on the way, not that it mattered. But uh, my only means of transportation that particular day was my little tiny Volkswagen Beetle, which had a fabulous super level uh, area where I could set the cake, but it wasn't very big. So I went ahead and stacked the first two double layers. So I've got four layers high on the one, frosted it all up, right? And then I have the next one over here. And then when I get where I'm going, I'm going to actually put them in place. And you always carry a big bucket of frosting with you for obvious reasons, right? So um, I'm getting all the way, I'm feeling really good about this. The uh, only problem is Volkswagen Bug has like zero shock absorbers. And so the storm of I-75 did some damage to my cake. And when I opened the trunk, one whole side corner of this cake had fallen loose, had just jiggled and fallen loose. And now my dowel pin on that side has nothing to support it. There's nothing holding that up. And the whole second layer is, is head. I mean, you mean it's leaning. It's leaning hard. I don't have any choice. I have to haul this thing in there, set it down in the middle of the room. The only person in the whole place is the other, the caterer. And he's wearing his fancy stuff and he walks by. He doesn't even talk to me. He just goes, he just lifts his eyebrows and keeps on going. Kind of like, good luck, sister. And he just left me. He didn't, he didn't offer any help. He didn't offer anything. And so I pull out my bucket of frosting, but I can't just pack it with frosting. That's even softer than cake. That's not going to work. I looked around and found some disposable coffee cups. Thank you, Jesus. They had disposable coffee cups. I found one, flipped it on its head, cut it off to the height of that layer. And then I just kind of went over the cake and shoved it under to hold up that side of the cake. Now I have a cup in the middle of my cake. I'm hoping they don't 
cut there, right? And then I get my frosting out and I just, I just slather that thing in there, you know, decorated it like it had never been. And the catering guy walked by and he goes, that's amazing. And I said, I said, listen, dude, I've got to stack the third layer and it's not going to last long. He goes, I gotcha. He said, you go on into the ceremony. I'll take care of it if it falls. I said, okay. So we forgot to call the photographer, but anyway, I don't know what happened while I was in the ceremony, but when I came out, the cake was flat and in pieces. He had plated the whole thing. So clearly it, it took a dive. Here's my point. There are times and there are things in our life that we have slathered in and covered over in our life. And we're wondering why it's not strong. And we're hoping nobody digs in there or tries to cut into that piece of cake right there because they're going to hit something. And we know that there's a problem, but we're just covering it up and we're just plastering it full because we don't know what to do. And I'm telling you, the stuff that is inside of us that should not be there will come out in a time of weakness. It will. Sometimes that weakness is nothing more than absolute fatigue. You are so tired, you, can't, you don't know what to do next, you don't have any, any energy left to be polite, right? And whatever's in there just kind of spills out. Have you been there? Where you just cannot manage it. So you're either feeling weak, you're feeling fatigued, and I'm gonna go here. I think another thing that allows what's on the inside to come out is alcohol. They say, oh, alcohol loosens you up. Yeah, it does. It loosens up that guard that you had over all that stuff. You have pent up anger and you start drinking too much and that's coming out on somebody. You've been thinking any appropriate thoughts about somebody else's spouse in their presence. You drink too much, that comes out. Some people say that, that alcohol just allows us to do and say the things we wish we always could do and say. And, we, and you know, we're just not using any filter during that time. There are things, some of us are this close, this close to somebody finding something on our phone that is going to ruin a relationship. Some of us are this close to somebody discovering something about us in our work and we're about to lose a job over an issue of integrity. Some of us are this close to losing a marriage because there are things in our life that we have not dealt with and we just keep patching it up and patching it up. Guess who is not a good judge of whether or not you've been drinking too much? The person drinking. You are not a good judge of that. I hear people, I can handle my alcohol. Well, of course you think you can. You've had too much, right? Somebody else is the judge of that. We've got to be careful about that. And I'm not saying find more ways to hide it. I'm just saying that it, the storm will reveal the foundation it will reveal what's really going on right here, and we've got to get back to that foundation. Some of us have just flat ignored the warning signs. This made me think of the collapsing condo that, you know, has been in the news over the past uh, couple weeks and the sadness of that. You know, and now they're going back like, whose fault was it? Whatever. You know, they should have seen it. You know what? Some of us have warning signs in our life, and we're blowing right past them. Somebody said, I see a crack in that foundation, and you're like, oh, it's not that bad. It's really not that bad. i got a handle on this. Or, you know, it, you, you just are making too big of a deal of it. It's not that big of a deal. We don't have to do it. Or it's too inconvenient to fix it. It's too costly to fix it. I don't want to get my alcohol under control because I won't be able to drink with my friends. I, you know, I don't want to give up whatever it is. When you know it's a problem. There are things in our life that we are just not willing to deal with, and, we are, and I'm telling you, a storm is going to shake it loose. We cannot control the weather or know precisely where the next storm is, 
But scripture says a foundation will be revealed by fire and you will see what survives. You will see what's left. But number three, and here's the good news. You can rebuild on a foundation. You can rebuild, friends. God is a God who rebuilds. God is a God who restores. Quickly, I'm going to take you to the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to read just a couple verses there, but let me set the stage, right? If you're in your Bibles, Nehemiah 2. Nehemiah is... A, let, me set, let me explain where we are in history. This is the post-exilic period, okay? The children of Israel and Jerusalem and Judah have been conquered. And whenever somebody would come in and conquer them, they would haul off the best of the best, the cream of the crop, and they'd leave a few people to keep the place running. So Nehemiah is one of the ones who've been hauled off, and he was such a good guy that he manages to become the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes I. Now, King Artaxerxes I likes this man. This is not a sub, it's not a, a low position. To be the cupbearer, you're not only the butler and the person who serves him his personal drinks, you're overseeing his personal consumption so that he doesn't get poisoned. You're making sure nobody puts anything in his cup. You might be tasting it first and taking the fall first. Whatever it is, you're in very close communication with him. You have a good relationship. Cupbearers were a high status situation. One day, Nehemiah hears from one of his brothers back in Judah, and he says, how are things going? He said, things are terrible. The walls are falling down. Everything's in disarray. So the next time that um, Nehemiah serves the king, uh, the king says, what's the matter? You seem really glum today. That's how close they were. You seem like you're not happy. What's going on? And he says, well, I'm just disturbed about my hometown and the, you know, the, the place is broken down and I'd really love to go back and rebuild it. And the king says, all right, how long you want to be gone? How much time off you need? He needed 52 days, by the way. That's all it took. But he said, and by the way, I'll give you a letter so that you can go to the forestry and take some of our wood so that that will help you. I will give you safe passage through some land with a, a letter of, with my signature on it. You know, I will give you the resources you need to do that. So he heads out. He goes back to uh, this land. And he does not tell the people in Jerusalem what he's there for. Instead, he inspects the wall at night. He gets on his mount, he makes circles around the wall, he checks for all the, the places that need shoring up, and then he meets with the people and he says this, Nehemiah 2, 17 through 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Three things real quickly out of this passage. You've got to be brave enough to ask for help. You've got to be brave. If you want to rebuild whatever is broken in your life, whatever you know is crumbling in your life, you've got to be, you've got to be humble enough to ask for help. Somebody higher than you. The king offered resources to him, right? He offered to pay for this situation. He didn't have any reason to do that. There are people in your life who care about you that you need to report to and say, I need help. Number two, you've got to take stock of where you are. He, he ran the perimeter of this thing and he said, wow, this needs shoring up. That's a problem. You need to get up in the dark of night and evaluate your life and say, where in my life are there weaknesses? Where are there things that I need to work on? Where are the things that God wants to rebuild in my life that are going to end up crashing me down at some other point? And number three, you cannot do it alone. Nehemiah didn't build this alone. He actually called the workers together and he's like, listen, we're going to do this. There's a team. There are people around you who want to help you. 
There are people around you who want you to be accountable with you and keep you accountable for what's going on. Now listen, and this is the third thing, we may get into this later, but you will face opposition. These guys worked on the wall, and at one point, it says that they worked with one hand and had a weapon in the other. And that's how they got the work done, because somebody was always opposing the good work that was happening. If you start getting a handle on the broken places in your life that God is bringing to your attention, the enemy's coming after you. It's not going to be easy. There will be opposition. But guess what? God is a God who restores. This is what he says in Joel 2. 25 and 26. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts and the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. If you've never been here before, let me explain what's going on. These folks up here are our prayer team. And we're going to go into one last song as you come to your feet. Let's rise to our feet. And any time during this song, if you see somebody up here, you can walk right up to them. And they will probably say, what can I pray for you about? And if you've got something, you can say it. And if you don't, if you don't even want to voice what your issue is, they will pray heaven down on you. And you don't have to say a word. Maybe tonight, you, or t this morning, you just need to do business with God. And you need to go to one of the communion stations and uh, that are around the room uh, where you see candlelight. Maybe you need to do that during this, this song. Let's do business with God in whatever way he's calling you to this morning. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. I thank you for the call to, uh, to shore up the areas of our life that we've just been covering and spackling in. God, thank you that there are people around us who will, will support and help us because that's what community is about. Thank you for that. God, I thank you that you are a God who restores and no matter how bad our building practices have been in the past, we can go right back to the foundation of you and start right over again because you are a God who rebuilds. You are a God who restores. Speak to us now. Do a deep work in our heart. In Jesus' name. Amen.